Hi, my name is Binder. I'm a marijuana addict. I, I'm really grateful that this space has been made for us. I'm, I'm grateful that um, you guys hold these groups and support our community. I'm here to share my experience, strength, and hope, and I don't have a ton of relationship with the phone lines, so I'm just going to share as I normally would in a normal meeting, a normal speaking, speaker meeting format. And I'm going to kind of go chronologically, and then I'm going to kind of at the end touch on a few of the important overarching things of my experience that I, that I hope I've learned that I'm, and, and I'm continuing to learn. But more than anything, I want to start by expressing my gratitude to this program and to the community that surrounds it, the community of recovery and support that Marijuana Anonymous has, has given me. It really has given me a whole new life. I have found a new way to live because of the steps and I only was able to do the steps because of the way that the community supported me when I, when I needed it most. So I'm very grateful. Anyway, my name is Binder. I'm a marijuana addict. I, at a young age, had experiences with addiction in, through my mother. I was the, I'm the son of an alcoholic. My mom was a, a pretty bad alcoholic through my elementary and middle school life. It, caused a, 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 a divorce between my mother and my father somewhere in middle school. And when that happened and my mom moved out, I was still caring for my little sister a lot through, through a lot of that darkness that happened. I would come over from school and my mom would be kind of a mess on the floor, covered in urine or vomit. And, and I would be very aware as a, you know, whatever, a 10-year-old that I had to clean up my mom and hide her and somehow protect my little sister from, from this scene. And so I was very, I, I don't know, I think there was some kind of trauma that happened at that young age having to do with experiencing my mom's alcoholism that I think really instilled in me. I didn't really fully understand what was happening necessarily, but I definitely understood that alcohol was dangerous. And I didn't, Again, I didn't fully don't think I didn't understand everything that was going on there, but that's an important seed of why I ended up becoming so focused on marijuana later is because I was so scared of marijuana, uh, so scared of alcohol. There's a few other pieces that are worth mentioning about my early life, which are we grew up part of a faith community in, in the Northeast and in the darkness of this need of this like addiction crisis that my mom was having, I did not feel particularly supported by the faith community that we were a part of as kids, whereas I had years earlier. And I think that part of that is my perception as a child might be on or off, who knows. But I do think that there was a divorce involved as well as an addiction that the faith community didn't necessarily handle well. Um, that, is kind of run-of-the-mill American baggage in a lot of ways. And on top of that, what really happened in the development of my mother's addiction was she was helped out of alcoholism and into the AA program by another woman, and they, and they fell in love. And so when I was in middle school, I would say safety and some amount of regular, you know, safety really is the, is the best word for it. Safety and security returned to my life through uh, 
the lens of a homosexual relationship that my mom and, and through AA entering our lives. And so I was very conscious that this was better, you know, a better life for us and that there was this new person that was part of our family and that the alcoholic kind of drunken escapades had stopped. We, there were a lot less interactions with police and that, you know, we had a lot of just negative interactions surrounding my, my mother's alcoholism. Um, but this continued the kind of isolation I felt from the faith community, as you might imagine. Um, whereas they hadn't really understood necessarily my mom's alcohol problem, they really weren't into the idea of these two women loving each other. And, and I just felt a little abandoned. I don't, I'm not, I don't want to make comments on that whole faith community thing. I'm just sharing my experience as a kid, as a kid who felt isolated and alone. I felt like the faith community, you know, the Sunday school I'd been a part of, all the moms that had been like bringing over casseroles and the kids that were my age, they weren't there when I needed them. They weren't there in our darkest moments. Um, and I felt very abandoned. And I think at an, and you know, much older in my story, you know, in, in years, in the years to come from this past moment that I'm talking of, I think that resentment came back and I wasn't fully aware of it, especially as a child. But I do see now, I think I felt abandoned. I think I didn't understand their block towards, um, participating in our lives of, of hard, um, even at a hard point. Um, but, I, it should be said that my dad wasn't that way. My dad did belong to like, you know, he's a super strong Baptist Christian guy. But yet what I saw in him was never judgmentalism towards my mother or judgmentalism towards the new, you know, adulterous homosexual relationship that his wife went into. He never had beef with either my mom or her new partner. He was always kind of just on everyone's side and had a very loving and calm way about him, which is kind of a beautiful example. Um, and again, I don't know if my perception as a child is wrong. Um, at to this, you know, today I'm, I'm a 35 year old guy and, and I don't know what the truth is. I can only say how I felt at the time and, and a certain amount of perception involved there. But I do know that when I was around 12 years old, 13 years old, I got involved with a lot of the kids in our little neighborhood where my mom had moved out. We had lived in the country with my dad, and my mom moved to the closest neighborhood, basically. And that neighborhood had kids my own age. And pretty soon, we were in some shed in the back of someone's yard, um, smoking weed through the funniest-looking plastic devices, using lighters in funny ways. And, and I, the first time I smoked that nothing really happened, but it was within a month later or something that we really did click that I was quickly into smoking bongs and making gravity bongs. And I just, and the, my first experience being really high happened at, at I think 12 years old around there. And partly because I was not participating in 
there same drinking a beer. There were older brothers involved with some of these friends, and a lot of them drunk beer. And I really stayed away from that. But I was open to the idea of something that wasn't beer. Um, and so that was weed. And, and I definitely remember my first experience getting high and just being kind of blown away that that's how it felt. And, and it was, it was just such a new thing. And there was most definitely an escape from reality that happened. Um, and a, and a good feelings. And more than anything, I think what I saw as what I felt as a kid was a feeling of camaraderie. And, uh, I felt very connected and loved by the people I was high with. And I think that that is one of the things that continued through my marijuana addiction. And it's still maybe something that I I respond to as an adult is the feeling of fellowship, camaraderie, togetherness. Um, But I I certainly first found it in drugs, in weed. Um, I got into it. I was a, at 12 years old when I first started smoking, I hadn't really hit puberty yet. I was very overweight and self-conscious because of my weight. I uh, had a few kind of odd things. I have a birthmark on my chest, and I was very overweight, so I didn't want to take off my shirt in a pool. And I remember there was a few experiences that happened related to these things. Like once I was, I took off my shirt at a neighborhood pool. It was just a bunch of guys like us. And, and the cool kid who was a neighbor who lived a few blocks away, Kubi. Kubi was like, oh, wow, look at your tent. It's so cool, you know, because it had a big birthmark on it. And Kubi thought it was cool, and he was the kid I admired. And I was just like, well, well Kubi thinks my birthmark's cool. And I've been ashamed of it for all these years. And I just the gears in my head started turning like, the cool kid thinks it's cool, and I've been ashamed about it what if I just pretend it's cool from now on and I'm just not ashamed of it anymore? I'll just pretend I like my birthmark and there's nothing to be ashamed of. And this really echoes, like, I don't know if there's any Game of Thrones fans in the audience, but Tyrion Lannister's thing about, like, your biggest insecurities you can wear as armor and no one can use them to hurt you. And this was a thing that I just learned somehow as, like, a, as an overweight, you know, preteen that I was very insecure about a lot of parts of my body, about my intellect, about who I was. And if I made fun of them or if I championed them as some kind of, sometimes in a self-deprecating way and sometimes in a self-aware way, that they would not be used as weapons against me. Um, And that that was a lesson that I learned at a really young age. And somehow this awareness as a preteen coupled with hitting puberty and smoking weed, I became a cool kid. I went from some kind of geeky, I read a ton of books and was advanced in math and doing all these things, and somehow I stepped into, like, jock, cool kid territory and just became a kind of different person towards the end of middle school, middle or middle and end of middle school. And I transferred schools and a few factors related into that. But pretty soon, I was a small-time drug dealer in our town, um, always trying to flip ounces into quaffs and quaffs into pounds and, and doing things as a you know, 15-, 16-year-old kid that were probably way above my pay grade. And I was participating in a lifestyle that was much darker than I think I realized at the time. We lived near 
a Native American reservation, and I was connecting with people on the on the res, trying to get weed from there or from Canada. Um, I was flying. I was participating in circles that were that were dangerous, um, and I was loving it. I was having a great time. I was definitely more popular, you know, suddenly having girlfriends. And I had went and gotten a real job. I worked at a pizza shop, and I would deal drugs there. And I played on the soccer team. And, I, you know, I, I participated in normal American life. But um, I definitely was the center of a world that I hadn't experienced prior to this in, in, my, in my earlier childhood. And I remember the, the, the biggest thing a note I want to – there was a big change that happened, similar to the one that happened with Kubi. There was a moment when I was with my father – um, as a 16-year-old, and, and I'll never forget it, I was covered in weed. Under Armour had just come out with these kind of like leggings, these tight leggings. And now we all kind of are aware of like spandex leggings that are tight and cling to your skin. But at the time, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was not the way we dressed. We all wore car baggy cargo pants and stuff like that. And so I was wearing tight Under Armour leggings under cargo pants, and I had all my weed bags separated on my legs. But no one would know because my baggy cargo pants were just kind of covering. And I was just walking around my own house covered in a few ounces of weed bags that were separated all through my legs. Um, and I was having, my friends were coming to pick me up. And I was going to go do things. Um, I couldn't drive. I was a 16-year-old. And, and my dad was talking. My dad was from San Francisco. And he was explaining his experiences from his, you know, when he was my age. And he had been a real geek in San Francisco in the 60s, early 70s. And he had uh, loved to make, loved a home chemistry set and made all kinds of chemicals and reactions happen and got into making fireworks and got into making bombs, essentially bombs, and would order from a magazine the chemicals that he needed to make these bombs and explosions happen with his friends outside of San Francisco. And they had a great time doing it. And because of the time, the era, you know, the early 70s, he, he had also been the main gardener in his family, um, the only one of the siblings who tended the garden. He was the youngest sibling in his family. And he tended the garden and began growing marijuana in their family garden. And no one in his family knew what it was. And so he, at the beginning of high school as a ninth grader grew a lot of marijuana in his own family garden outside of San Francisco and sold it and used the money to buy more chemicals to for bomb making essentially and I mean bomb making in a very jovial non-destructive way you know it's closer to firework making um there was he they weren't trying to explode anything they were trying to just laugh and have fun in the woods as kids in a very innocent way um and he had all kinds of funny stories, and I'd heard this before, but I'd never heard the part about my dad talking about growing weed as a ninth grader in his own garden. And he was telling me this, and I'm sitting there in a cold Syracuse winter, covered in bags of weed, and I'm riveted hearing about my dad smoking, or I mean not smoking, he was growing weed when he had been my age. And I was, I was so interested. And... My dad said, you know, 
sometime sophomore junior year, he smoked marijuana for the first time. And he began smoking it and, and, you know, using marijuana. And then at some point towards the end of his junior year, he, and this is my father talking to me, he said he felt like he had heard God say to him that smoking weed wasn't right for him, that God didn't want him to smoke weed was the exact words my dad used. And I was just like my brow furrowed, you know, 16-year-old binder, my brow furrowed, and I looked at my father and I said, Dad, do you think God doesn't want me to smoke weed? And here we go, right? This is the 16-year-old drug-dealing bad kid asking his Baptist father, does God think drugs are bad, (laughs) essentially? And my father goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I wouldn't dare say that. I would never say that. You have to ask God that for yourself. And that really put me back. I have to ask God myself whether marijuana is, whether smoking weed is bad for me. It was a seed that was definitely planted in that moment. I think it's the moment when a typical Baptist father would bring down the hammer of God, the hammer of righteousness, fire and brimstone on your son. Of course drugs are bad. Of course they are. God does, you're going to hell or whatever. And the fact that my father obfuscated that or chose not to go that route and said, whoa, 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 I would never presume to know what God wants for you. You have to ask him that for yourself. That seed did not sprout for another 15 years past that point, or at least 10, for another 10 years. But it was planted at that moment. And I, it's funny, I mention it that way because I brought this up to my father right now, my, my, today, in today's world, today, you know, 2022, um, my sister had been struggling a lot with her own addiction. And my dad asked me for advice now that I'm in recovery and, and he had just been talking to me about it the way families do. And I told him this story of him, what, how he had treated me as a 16 year old and how he had said that he would never presume to know whether drugs are bad for me at that moment. And he was like, I said that. Why in the world would I say that? He does not remember saying that. And it's funny that, uh, you know, maybe God spoke through him in a way that wasn't even typical of his own thoughts, beliefs, or behaviors, which is even funnier. Makes me smile now. Um, but I do think that as far as I was from God at that point, I really had a lot of resentment towards the church, towards religious people, and had a lot of kind of misconceptions about my own higher power, I thought that that moment was a particularly instructive one, that I would never presume to know what God wants for you, Binder. You have to figure that out by asking for yourself. Um, and I continued on my way. I went out that night and continued my life as a, as a drug-dealing, pot-smoking, crazy kid. And I did get into alcohol, and I did get into darker and darker things, including, I think the darkest thing was all the women, young women and girls that I hurt, I think, in the process. I was not a good person. Um, I think in pursuit of fellowship and camaraderie, I really got a lot of wires crossed, and I I think I've done a lot of damage to a lot of people that I might not be able, or at least at this moment, I don't know necessarily how to ever repair 
other than being a better person today. I'm, I'm currently the father of a young daughter who's having a birthday tomorrow, um, which is why I'm in the car in the parking lot and mom's handling everything inside. But um, on with the story. It, through high school, I did develop a bad reputation. I was a bad kid. Um, and I ended up changing schools and being popular in a lot of different schools. I was participating in private schools that I used to go to, public schools that I was dealing in, a public school that I went to. I was participating in a lot of different student bodies. And I just remember this one experience of being going to a prom. I had a beautiful girl that I went with um, that I was not interested in. We went very plutonically. She wasn't interested in me. I wasn't interested in her. Um, and we went to celebrate. We, we rented the limo with a ton of friends, and we went to a party. And, and going up to this party, I could see that it was, you know, a big house party after prom. We're all in nice clothes. And I had taken the liberty of renting or borrowing a huge bong from a friend of mine, and I had all the drugs, and, and I had put it all in kind of like a big laundry basket, and we had beer and liquors and everything important. And I had, but I was caring for my friend's humongous bong. It was probably four feet tall and had many chambers. And, and I was very aware that I was responsible for this very precious thing. And I put it in a laundry basket. And before we walked into this party, because I could tell it was a party, a uh, prom party that was chaperoned by, quote unquote, cool parents. You know what I mean? Like there were parents there, but they were cool. And they were, as long as the kids all slept over, you know, they were fine. And so I, I kind of knew what was up a little bit. So I put my laundry basket full of nefarious things in the cornfield across the street and knocked on the door and everyone was happy to see us and whatnot. And, you know, we got a short interview from the parents and at some point during this interview to be let into this party downstairs in their basement, we're all, you know, we knew everybody. Somehow my reputation had preceded me and I was a bad kid. And it became clear that I was the reason that no one else was going to get into this party because I was identified as a bad kid. And that was so embarrassing and humiliating. And, you know, I'd kind of ruined everyone's night in a little ways. And the parents were super nice about it. They put us all in a car and they drove us back to the house from where we'd come from, my other buddy's house. And everything was fine. But I couldn't, during this drive, be like, hey, can I pick up my bong and all the beer that's in the cornfield across the street? Would that be okay? Um, and so... I spent the, you know, we got home to this, uh, to my buddy's house at, you know, midnight or whatever. And I was very conscious that my, the bong I was caring for was 10 miles away in a cornfield that I had to go get now. And I stole, I went and, you know, broke into someone's house. I stole a bike. I biked down a hill. I crashed the bike. I ran across the country. I was, you know, on dark roads running, um, the, all the way to get this thing. And I, at some point in that night, I found a car with keys in it. It was a Volvo station wagon just parked in someone's driveway. And I just opened the car door and sat in this car. And I was probably halfway there. It's a halfway to the bomb. And I just remember, wow, the keys are here. Let's go. 
and I just was sitting in this Volvo going, feeling like this was a life-changing moment, like the moment I steal a car. And, and for some reason, I did not steal that car. I decided, okay, well, I'm already halfway there. I'll just walk. I'll just continue jogging. I'm a young guy. I'm in shape. I'm going to run. So I ran. I collected the thing. I broke into other people's cars because, I mean, the parking lot of this, uh, the driveway, rather, of this person's house at prom was full of, you know, kids who went to my high school's cars. And so I opened up some car, found a sleeping bag, found a tent, took them off into the cornfield somewhere farther away, set them all up, and slept. But I knew my bong was, my buddy's bong was, you know, cared for. And that was my priorities. I'd left, I'd abandoned and left a trail of wreckage behind me that night of people, of relationships. There was an expensive bike I had crashed. And this was fairly indicative of my priorities at the time. I was, my priorities were caring for this bong, making sure that my, this somehow this drug lifestyle was maintained. And my relationships that were really important to me were these ones. Um, as much as my negative relationships, I mean, excuse me, my negative reputation had preceded me that night, there were other parts of it related to weed specifically that were positive. On the soccer team, for instance, there was a no drug policy, right? No one was allowed to be high. No one was allowed to smoke weed and be on this great state soccer team, you know, ranked soccer team that we played on, except me. The coach knew I was high all the time. The coach was very, I was kind of a new kid because I'd transferred schools and he was very accepting. For some reason, I played better high. I worked really hard. I didn't have the, the weird kind of jock bravado that a lot of the kids on the team had. I just kind of been doing my own thing. I was kind of a loner. I was showing up on the defense, defensive soccer team and playing my heart out, give, just like really going for it. And I was admired by the coach and by the other team members for this. Um, and so for some reason, I got a pass when it came to drugs. I was known to be a pothead that the coach knew. And he didn't accept it from anybody except for Binder. Binder was allowed somehow to be high, to smoke, to run this weird life that I, that I, that I lived. And there was some kind of exception made for pot at that point, for me specifically, that really continued for a while. I had thought I was going to go to college for math and science and be a very, you know, typical STEM kid. My father was a biochemical engineer. A lot of people, you know, just do that. And at some point I'd gotten into photography and photography had given me awards and I'd gotten into Photoshop and screen printing and art, general art studies. And I loved art. So I was thinking about doing that. And what I ended up doing was joining the Marine Corps out of nowhere. I was kind of just mad at everybody. You know, I was kind of a, just an ass to my general family and everybody. And I decided to join the Marine Corps. And I did it kind of without consulting anybody. Um, obviously, I'm an age where 9-11 happened when I was in middle school. And the Marine Corps was kind of full, full force, you know, fighting at this point. Um, I don't know why I did a lot of these things, but that was what I decided to do. I found a recruiter. They recruited me. I went and took the ASVAB, um, which is like this military entrance exam, and I joined the ROTC. And that uh, 
was its own kind of experience. I was going to be an officer in the Marine Corps, and they were going to pay. I qualified with my scores to get a scholarship to college and get all that paid for at an art school. I was going to go for photography at an art school, and the Marine Corps was going to pay for it. And then I was going to owe the Marine Corps four years when I got out, and everything was fine. Um, right before I shipped out to boot camp, my father had been on vacation doing something. You know, he had gone to visit his family in California, and my mom was around. And my mom was sober at this point. She drove by my dad's house while he was on vacation and thought the lights were on. And she pulled in because I wasn't supposed to be there. And we were all on the roof drinking, you know, a 12-pack of Labatt and smoking joints or whatever. And my mom had me arrested in our in our driveway of my own house. And that got me dishonorably discharged from the Marine Corps. And the funny thing here is I hadn't gone to boot camp yet. I was, at this point, almost 18, I think. And I must have been 18, right? And I hadn't gone to boot camp yet, but I'd taken the ASVAB, and I'd sworn the oath, which I guess is the moment that matters. I'd sworn you know, put up my right hand and looked at the flag and said, I swear to protect the Constitution of the United States, blah, blah, blah. And since I'd done that, I guess I was technically a Marine. I I didn't even think I realized it. I hadn't gotten paid. I hadn't gone to boot camp. I didn't feel like a Marine. But getting arrested in my own driveway got me a dishonorable discharge from the Marine Corps. And honestly, it saved my life. Knowing who I am, I I would have been running across the battlefield so fast for my buddy who was, you know, pinned down. I would have caught a bullet so fast. Um, I, I definitely think that me being arrested um, is one of the best things that ever happened to me. And obviously I couldn't see that at the time, but I'm so glad it did. Um I still did go to this art school that the Marines were going to send me to. I got dishonorably discharged from the Marine Corps, but this college had accepted me. I'm, I'm going. I'm going to this art school for photography. And I went to school with all the drugs I could get my hands on. I went with a suitcase. We drove down to that college with my family and my little sister and all. And I was so protective of my suitcase. It was basically half clothes, half drugs. And <laughs> pounds and pounds of weed of all different varieties, all that I could fit in a suitcase to go to what I saw as art school, pothead school, like, right? Like, let's go. And when I got there, I found the atmosphere at art school was nothing like I was expecting. There were no other people to smoke with. My RA was like a Bible-thumping, crazy, muscular uh he looked like a mini version of, uh, of Sylvester Stallone. He was super muscular and talked about Jesus all the time. And the atmosphere of art was absolute. People were dedicated to drawing all day and trying to do things in 3D and, and graphic design on Photoshop and stuff. And I was just appalled. I had expected a party atmosphere, and I did not find that. And I lived in fear that people were going to find my drugs. I hid them well, and, and I never got caught. But it was just so funny to me to go to art school with all these drugs and then not find a single person who shared this love of weed that I had been expecting to find. Um, 
eventually, of course, I did find people who smoked weed at college, especially at art school. I mean, it had to happen eventually, but it took a good two months before I found people who were in it like I was. Um, I, in college, I met a, a beautiful young lady, and we dated for many years. Her family was part of uh, aid organizations. They were admins in different aid organizations, and they took me in my relationship with, with this my girlfriend at the time they took me as a photographer to different countries around the world. And at this moment, I was pretty far from a loving, thoughtful individual in our society. I was pretty self-absorbed, self-conscious, arrogant prick, and still hurting a lot of people and not really caring. But somehow traveling around with this beautiful family that I came to know and love, I did experience my heart being becoming open, being opened literally by a by a higher power that I couldn't necessarily express or, or communicate about. I was a photographer and I took pictures of the nature of Africa, you know, animals and landscapes, but also the humanity that opened its doors to me there. There was that I found Africa and and a lot of the countries that we went to to be beautifully hospitable and generous in their um, poverty in a lot of ways. I don't know how to say this in a, in a enlightened way, but I was so welcomed that I, that my heart burst, that my heart broke in a good way, that it burst open and I experienced the love of humanity and somehow found humanism. I found God in other humans at that moment in, in, in my travels and in this relationship. And in that, I'd also seen again the same resentments come up of my religious past, that I'd seen missionaries doing condition, what I understood to be conditional love, saying, oh, you have a kid born in poverty? Well, if you join our church, maybe we can send them to school. Maybe if you come and say a prayer with us, we'll feed you. And what I'd found with the aid groups that this family was working with, an absolute unconditional love. Feed every kid. Send all the mother's nutritional supplements and send every kid to school. And I just really responded to this unconditional love, um, which I still today follow. Um, I became very open-hearted through that experience. But at the same time, my dependency on marijuana continued to manifest itself. I was now a designer, a graphic designer. I switched from photography to design. And weed became more of a crutch than it had ever been. It was the process through which me and a lot of people at my, in my group at college got anything done we were good designers we would smoke a ton of weed we would go to class high we would everything revolved around work and smoking and getting more and and you know what is, a lot of y'all know what it's like to have your life controlled by weed but we saw it as part of our design process which was part of this cyclical dependency that we had after college i got a real job i i worked for corporate america that relationship dissolved and I was in um, the Triangle area of North Carolina working. 
when and I was single and I did eventually yeah I played a lot of soccer and I smoked a lot of weed and I eventually met a a woman at soccer who today is my wife who brought me to a hippie church and at the hippie church I kind of encountered a new way to kind of interact with God that seemed a lot more authentic they were a lot more accepting of a lot of the baggage in the world and and I found a kind of some of the pieces of unconditional love that I'd been searching for, but I still had a ton of resentments because, you know, I had a lot of baggage and beef with Christians, like literally. And and I was smoking a lot of weed and had a lot of kind of bent things in my own life. And shortly after our, our marriage, probably a year into our marriage, my wife and I's marriage, um, she was very supportive of my like mental health things and and this is new vocabulary at the time but she was so supportive of me like quitting my real job and getting freelance jobs and going on to form a company with a business partner and you know liberating myself in a lot of ways that I didn't realize I had been shackled and one of the the most important way is the way that led me to marijuana anonymous which was sitting at dinner with her one night, looking across the table of spaghetti. You know, I, I was the cook. As the pothead in the family, I had learned to cook great. And I had cooked a beautiful meal for her and I, and we were sitting there in newlyweds, and she looks across the table at me and says, Honey, are you high right now? And I was heartbroken. I'd been caught, and I felt ashamed of myself. She said, Are you high right now? And I said, Yeah. Yeah, I am. And I'd gone outside while I was cooking and smoked a smoked a bowl on the back porch or something or finished a blunt or who knows what I did. And I'd come back in and finished cooking and I'd hidden it from my wife. And the truth is, I, she doesn't care if I smoke, if I had smoked. She never has. She's never asked me to change. And I'd been hiding it just the same because I was ashamed. And so she looks across the table from me and goes, Honey, are you high right now? Say yes, yes, and she puts her hands across the table onto mine and says, "That's okay, honey. That's okay. You can tell me that. I love you." And then we kept eating. She didn't bring it up again. There was no greater point. There was, oh, you can tell me that. You don't need to hide it. Are you high right now? The answer is yes. Okay, let's move on. And and we ate dinner. We continued. She didn't care. But in that interaction, I realized that I was hiding from someone who didn't care. I was hiding a thing that was accepted by her that I couldn't accept myself. I was hiding from my own self. Um, and the big point here is that that today is very much my understanding of my higher power, that I am hiding my dark, you know, my... Um, personal defects or the things I'm ashamed of from a higher power that loves and accepts me that says, that's okay. I love you. And we move on. And I'm hiding from someone who doesn't care. Um, so that was that story of me eating spaghetti with my wife and her accepting me when I'm high is my rock bottom story. That is the last time I was high to, 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 until today. Um, today's, seven years later, a little bit more than seven years later. Um, but my wife, shortly after that had happened, 
went on vacation. She went on a business trip to New Orleans, and she was leaving that night or that next morning. And I immediately called someone who I knew was in recovery, and I said, "How do I, you know, where do I go?" And she goes, "Have you ever heard of Marijuana Anonymous?" And she said that to me. She's an AA girl, the person who brought me to MA, but she knew MA, and she told me to Google it, and I did, and and I found a group near me who, who. I was excited to connect with, um, and that they at that time there was only an MA meeting once a week in person. I mean, this was years ago, so it was way before COVID it was on our map. But and so in the meantime, I'd gone to an AA meeting, an NA and an AA meeting. I went to AA and NA before I ever came to Marijuana Anonymous, and and I really encountered my people there. I had been aware of AA because my mom at this point was many years sober in AA and I'd seen her struggle in AA as a, as a female. Sometimes there's not a lot of women in recovery who are available to sponsor one another. Um, but on top of that, my mom, my mom being a gay woman in recovery, sometimes there's people who are weird about same sex sponsoring in a gay relationship. It just makes things a little more complicated. Maybe you can understand that. Um, so my mom struggled through her recovery to find sponsors and to work the steps in a meaningful way for her. But I did feel like when I arrived as a 20, whatever year old, like I had finally found a community and I got it. Um, I had uh, my first NA meeting. I said, you know, I'm a newcomer. Hi, my name is Binder. I'm an addict. And, and the super gangster guy who was running, who was the chair of that NA meeting stopped the meeting and said, I want you to know, you're the most important person in this room. You're the newcomer. You're the most important person here. And I almost cried. I think that's a pretty lame thing to do in a meeting. I mean, tell a newcomer, like, put all that pressure. But it, for some reason, that was God speaking to me that I was welcome. Um, and it really affected me as a newcomer. Um, I Today, me in recovery, I would never do that to a newcomer. I would never want to put them on the spot or make them feel like there was that much attention on them. I do think the newcomer is the most important person in a meeting, but I never would want to, uh, you know, over-dramatize it. Uh, but I really did appreciate it, and my heart broke again in a good way. Um, in MA, I remember I've, I still have my journals from that time in my life, and I remember going to AA, not really believing it, not really thinking I belonged there. I wasn't an alcoholic. And, in fact, I quit weed and continued drinking, day drinking rum and Cokes for many days. And I remember I was three or four days clean from marijuana when I was at the liquor store buying my second handle of this huge, like, two-gallon thing of rum. And I just was sitting there in the liquor store line at 10 a.m. and going, oh, my God, what am I doing? I gave up weed to just sit in line at the liquor store and drink two gallons of rum in coke all day and just be day drunk this is not better what am i doing and i just would have this existential crisis happen to me three days clean from weed and my third major trip to the second major trip to the liquor store and i just had this moment of clarity where i was just like oh my god and i put down the this bottle and i quit alcohol right there you know I, and i went to aa and ma and na and i found and it really started clicking with me in MA, though, is where I found people that I felt the most open to 
express myself because I did feel that there was a barrier because of my particular substance abuse in the other programs. And so as a newcomer who didn't understand a lot, I did not feel completely welcome in AA or in NA. Nowadays, I do. But at the time when I was a newcomer, I really owe NA that safe space. And I, and I'm, that's why I'm eternally grateful to it. I can see in my journals that I was so hopeful and I was so, um, yeah, I, there's no other word for it, hopeful of connecting with someone who spoke my language. And I remember coming to that first NA meeting and seeing one of every stereotype. There was this, you know, the old guy who drove a VW van and the young guy who was a, uh, you know, a punk-ass white kid like me. And there was a dad who smoked weed behind his wife's back. And there was, the, you know, there was one of every stereotype. And I just was so happy to see each one of them and give them a hug and felt welcome. And I really felt like I found my people. Um, it was in MA that I did my first steps. And, and I really cannot say enough now that I'm many years in recovery or a few years in recovery, I cannot champion enough the power of the steps and their difference from the meetings themselves. Um, now that I have a slight understanding of the literature involved in the different 12 step programs, the meetings bring us a, a thing called a daily reprieve where we share our suffering, where we share our pain, the things that bring us through the doors. We share that in our meetings. Um, I say, I'm really struggling. I say, I'm fighting with my wife or I'm humiliated at work and I feel like, uh, you know, I, I say these things to my brethren in meetings when they hurt the most. And that safe space is so sacred that I can be vulnerable. Um, but that daily reprieve that comes from sharing my suffering is different than the growth that comes from doing the 12 steps. The 12 steps are a way that I have found I am able to follow in a kind of thoughtless, concrete way. Just do X, says my sponsor. Do this thing. Write a list of people that you have baggage with. Any baggage, I don't care what it is, write a list. There's going to be a 20, 100 people on that list. Just write a list of every, and I can just write down 100 names. And then my sponsor says the next part of step four, which is let's write an example of every single specific thing that has happened in your relationship with that person of why you have baggage with them. What is the exact, and, and now I know, at looking back on it, that is trying to get at the exact nature of our wrongs. Um, so, I was able to rely on the, the guide of a sponsor through the 12 steps in a way that was very natural, saying not overthinking everything, just going this thing, this kind of mechanical, technical action. I can write down a list of all the people I have baggage with, some of it good, some of it bad, so most of it's their fault, none of it's mine, and just do that. I can just write down the names. Then the next step was, the next step, the next part of the step of step four was for me to write down the specific, the most specific examples I could of what did my mother-in-law say to me that hurt my feelings so bad. Well, here's four examples of what my mother-in-law said that really irked me. Um, she said, don't I love my daughter? Why would I dress her like that? And I can write down that specific example. And then in the next part of step four, I can kind of look at that. Why, why did that hurt me? Why did, why did I find that humiliating? What part of me did it insult? 
what part of it is her wrongdoing and what part of it is me overinterpreting her statement. And you and this whole process of like kind of technically dissecting your life and your relationships helps see what has happened in the past. And I realize, oh, I have a passive aggressive relationship with my mother in law. That I that she says these inappropriate things and I know they're inappropriate but I don't know how to process it and therefore I kind of make pokes at her for the rest of the for the rest of the weekend. I just say inappropriate things, I make comments, I'm I'm a generally shitty person. And I don't want to be a generally shitty person. Nowadays, when my mother-in-law is around, I repeat back to her the things that she says to me. She says something like that, I say, I just repeat it. And I say, did you mean that? What do you think? You know, like, um, I just have a different way of handling it today. And the steps have granted me that in a very concrete way. That's just a particular set of steps I'm talking about. Further in them, dealing with my own insecurities, realizing how deep that thing was about my birthmark and using my insecurities in a self-deprecating way in step six, seven, and eight, like how I handle my own insecurities has been such a huge part of my life and how that has affected my identity as a person, I didn't even realize. And there's so much there that, that needs to be continually unpacked about like the coping mechanisms that I use in my own life. So my real point here is that the steps brought me freedom and it brought me a new way to live. Um, I do have a lot more to say, but I want to be respectful of people's time. So, again, I'm just so grateful. I'm Binder. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you for being here.